This week's show is sponsored by Illumio, whose breakthrough adaptive segmentation technology stops lateral threats inside of any data center and cloud. Check out their website for details at illumio.com slash datanauts. Our thanks to Liquid Technology for sponsoring the Datanauts today. Liquid Technology purchases decommissioned IT hardware, provides secure on- and off-site data destruction, as well as fully compliant and green e-waste recycling solutions for your organization. Visit them at liquidtechnology.net slash podcast. Do you ever miss being a kid in grade school? You've just come back from a break and your overprivileged peers are taking turns at the front of the room talking about their luxurious holidays where they had all of the fun and did all of the things. No? That's too bad, because this week on Data Knots, Chris is going to tell you about his amazing and enviable trip to the PowerShell and DevOps Global Summit. Or, as I was asked to introduce it, here's a fireside chat with Chris and Ethan. Howdy, I am Chris Wall, and you can follow me at Chris Wall, and with me is my co-host who... Oh, man, I never filled in snark here, but imagine something in your brain. He's Ethan Banks, at EC Banks on the Twitters. And this is the Data Nuts Podcast. You can find this in all of our shows on iTunes and your favorite podcatcher, or at PacketPushers.net. So how are you doing today, Ethan? You sounded very I, chipper when we talked I earlier. Just, <laughs> you've described me with imaginary snark. That's like the least effort snark there is. <laughs> you have to imagine your own snark and fill it in. <laughs> I feel like we're all engineers at heart, and there's a certain degree of laziness that I embrace. You know, like I own it. I don't, I don't hide it. Before we talk about the main thing that, that we wanted to get into today, which is your visit to the PowerShell and DevOps Global Summit. I, I got a question I want to ask. To, we didn't talk about this before the show, but this came up on Twitter where I put a question out there. I said, if you use software quality as your metric, who is your favorite enterprise IT vendor? And the hate that came back to me in my timeline was just Whoa. astonishing. <laughs> I mean, people were like, um, no, how about none of them? And then several responses like that. And, and I wrote up a quick article about it, kind of summarizing the responses in a human infrastructure magazine that we publish over on packetpushers.net. But I just wanted to get your take on that. Do you think that uh, – I mean, a few people said nice things about a few vendors. We'll, we'll leave that off to the side. For the most part, it was just like bile and anger and rage about the state of software quality in the industry. Is your take on it kind of similar, that things are grim in that regard? <laughs> well – it depends if we're talking about when I was a customer and I had to use these things to get my day job done to produce something, in which case probably VMware was my best, you know, back in the, the 4.x days and, and then kind of tapered off a little bit in the 5.x days as quality control got a little little squishy, we'll say. Um, I didn't have any hatred unless the vendor used Java to display the interface. I'm looking at you, Cisco UCS. <laughs> you know, love the product. But once you filter it through the lens of Java, even the most beautiful intended product becomes, I'll keep using the word squishy. It becomes a little <laughs> squishy at that point. But I, I certainly don't, I don't attach hatred to any product. You know, like maybe I haven't been beaten enough. In fairness, I'm inferring hatred just based on the, the okay. tweets. Some of them were are pretty snarky and it's hard to get clear emotion read through a tweet, but just people that were just very cynical and like, you know, really, you're asking that question? Come on and so on. My theory on it is as products get more complex and almost all the enterprise IT products that we use seem to be getting more complex over time, there's feature bloat, that software quality just necessarily 
gets worse because there's more and more dependencies that are built amongst those different features. And so you create this monster software package that does all these really cool things, but the more those cool things there are, the harder it is to have them be bug-free and to work together correctly all of the time and so on. And because of that, especially for, like you mentioned, going from 4.x to 5.x in the VMware world and then things get, as you charitably put it, squishy. Well, yeah, you know, the product's maturing, the product's getting all those additional features. And so now, again, my theory is that's just kind of a natural course of action. From the networking world, I know with Cisco, and you look at iOS, there are so many features packed into iOS that it becomes impossible over time for them to keep up with them all. I mean, I remember, so this goes back a long time, but I discovered a memory leak in a routing process on a core switch. It's like, eventually, this switch is going to fall over until I can install new code that fixes this particular bug. And I just I was monitoring a particular SNMP variable that was showing me the memory utilization of this routing process, and it would climb and climb and climb. It's like, this is my core switch. I am sad. This should never happen. Because I was using a particular train in the Cisco software line that was supposed to be bomb-proof. It's called Safe Harbor. What that, that program is long gone, but it was called Safe Harbor at the time. And even that wasn't good. So, I mean, I, I get the rage and the snark because when things go bad due to a bug, we all feel like victims. And it sucks because it's beyond our control as engineers to deal with it. Well, I, I think that's also just a symptom of how software was written back in the day. I'll use a probably contentious example here with Windows. I don't think anyone's going to argue with me that Windows Millennium and Windows Vista were steaming piles, right? They were just really bad. And then with Windows 7, they kind of rewrote it from scratch. They kind of started over. And it was arguably much better. I think as an experience goes, it went up. Even there were more features and there were things they got wrong and ultimately fixed in Windows 8, 8.1, and 10. The experience has, in my mind, improved. At the very least, if we're talking about experience from a quality perspective, like memory leaks and explosions within the software stack, I personally noticed that go down and my user experience go up. So I think just how we write software and is there unit testing, you know, like Matt Oswalt likes to talk about test-driven development or TDD, those things influence because there's just, there's meat spatulas, aka hands, writing all of this stuff. And, you know, if you're using the old waterfall what was it? Something like you have to set the delivery date of the baby before you even get married, and that's modern product management for software. You know, like it's impossible. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember uh, someone at Cisco telling me about uh, having to design an ASIC, and it's like you're trying to hit a moving target five years ahead of time so you can actually get the design plans in, and then uh, you'll start to spin out that ASIC with the features it's supposed to have at some point in the future when everything is moving constantly. Anyway. Anyway, yeah, I didn't really figure we were going to solve the problems of the world here, but it, it does seem to be an issue that's, I, I don't know, I guess I feel like it's worse now than it has been. It used to be back in the day, 15, 20 years ago, when I was dealing with a lot of Windows administration, there were monthly security patches, and that's mostly what they were. They weren't also a bazillion bug patches. Sometimes there were a lot of that stuff, too, but it seemed like a lot of it was driven by security. Now it's like, well, yeah, of course you've got all the crappy security holes. But you've also got all of this production impacting kind of bugs that you got to be staying on top of all the time as well. Maybe it's not any worse than it ever was, and it's just my perception. I'm not sure. But certainly, it's something that as practitioners, end users, we feel it. We feel the pain. Yeah, and back in your day, there was like, what, eight computers? So it wasn't a big deal. No, I was like four. Eight was like, four. we were, we were okay. hoping. But. 
I do remember reading something. It was, I can't remember if it was Bill Watson or not, but somebody had the quote, computers, who would ever need these? There's only like 10 people in the world that needs one of these things. And <laughs> it made me think of you. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Well, okay, so speaking of software, software quality, software development, you were somewhat at the intersection of that with infrastructure. You went to the, as I'm reading in the title here, the fifth annual PowerShell and DevOps Global Summit, which sounds like a pretty big deal. Pretty cool title, right? What, what is this event all about? Well, it's exactly that. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a global summit, meaning folks from all around the world come to meet and talk about PowerShell specifically, but also how that feeds into the DevOps ecosystem done once a year, I think for the last couple of years, and specifically this year, it was in Bellevue at the uh, Maidenbauer Center, which is awesome. It's nice and nerdy. Being that it's a PowerShell-focused gathering, uh, about 250 geeks show up for a very modest price because it's it's non-for-profit. So you're looking at 1500 bucks for four solid days of meals and content and great stuff. So this is not a like exclusive Microsoft-specific event? No, in fact, Microsoft's there as kind of an invited guest to come talk about PowerShell and talk about their products because they have Azure Stack and Azure and DSC and whatnot. But it's run by volunteers, four volunteers led by uh, the really popular Don Jones to just really give people that are interested in PowerShell and DevOps specifically a forum to kind of discuss, learn, share ideas, etc. around PowerShell realistically. So it's not run by a corporation or a vendor, like I said, not-for-profit. The reason I went was because I, I did a quick ROI, and I'm like, okay, four days, that's like 350 bucks a day for sessions I actually want to go to. And I think there's like eight sessions a day plus some workshops and everything. I can't find better bang for my buck, so I decided to go up there and check it out. It's my first year going, and I'm definitely going to sign up for the next year. And that's kind of why I want to talk about it, because it is, it's not run by some you know, vendor Robotron in the background. And it was very valuable to me, so maybe to be valuable to someone else. Okay, so four days of nonstop PowerShell. So eight sessions a day, I'm just doing the math. <laughs> That's 32 sessions if you attended every single one. And it's, you get that for, for 1400 bucks to attend? Is that plus your travel and accommodations, I assume? Yeah, yeah. The ticket, I went early bird. I think it was 1500 flat. And then travel to get up there and back, you know, obviously is variable. And uh, the, the good folks at Rubrik were off willing to pay. So then go there and learn, because we do a lot of PowerShell and API-type work. But yeah, pretty good stuff. And it's only going to get easier as they, as they move forward. They're going to get hotel blocks and you know, kind of the jazz that you'd expect as a conference starts to grow and hit you know, the 300-plus number of uh, headcount. That is definitely cheap, though, because the average training class, if you were to get it from like official vendor training, you're into three, four $4,000 for a four- or five-day class easily pretty typical to see those kind of prices charged. So 1500 bucks for this and it's independent. Okay. So the independent aspect of this, so you're not getting like, I don't know what Microsoft might offer for official PowerShell training. If there is such a thing in their catalog, I presume there is. These are independent sessions. So what are you actually getting then? You're getting to sit down with some of the best and brightest in the industry around PowerShell. You know, there's folks like Don Jones himself, who's done a book that I loved called Learn Windows PowerShell in a Month of Lunches, along with Jeff Hicks. And both of them have done a lot of training and a lot of courses. They're professional trainers. like that's They're independent, but that's what they do. But there's also folks like Chris Hunt that was out there to talk around how to do mocking for unit testing. Some folks from the PowerShell team talking about how to do parallelism when you're coding and various different ways to do that. So you're looking at really deep, I would say advanced maybe intermediate to advanced level users would get value out of this. It's not the 
what is PowerShell? And let's sit down and let, you know, there's an assumption that you've made that investment at some point in your career to learn the basics and the syntax of the code. Now you're trying to extend that further. And for me, that is really hard to find. Pretty much all the content for the trade shows that I go to tends to be, I'm trying to sell you something, which is completely waste of my time. I don't care. Or I'm trying to just give you the basic intro for something so that we can hit a very large audience. And I appreciate that those are out there and they're important. But at the same time, I'm the kind of person that if it's an intro level thing, I'm going to check YouTube first. And that's how I learned a lot of the, you know, like, how do, where do I download it? How does it install? What are the common pitfalls? Like, that to me can be done pretty easily in a more, you know, one-to-many scenario being a recorded video. And having the more advanced and expert level sessions be more one-to-one because I'm probably going to have some weird one-off questions or I'm going to want to know something very specific because 80-20 rule, right? If 80% of the content uh, is going to be solved by one thing, that other 20% is a vast amount of these little syntax things and commands that hardly anybody uses. And that's why I'm going to want to pick the brain of, of the person that's been in the trenches for decades. You want to level up is really that, that's you, like you said, you've got some investment. You are already competent with PowerShell. You're going to go in there, talk to the best and brightest, the people that are going through all the latest and most advanced techniques. And then you, as a result, if you can make use of all that information, you're going to level up. Now, now you're a black belt. Exactly. Exactly. And it's just, it's hard to find. And, and again, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of folks on our show that are listening that have never even touched PowerShell. And that's fine. And there's a lot of content. Like I said, I recommend. Don Jones and Jeff Hicks wrote that book, the uh, Learn PowerShell in a Month of Lunches. And because it's so simple, you absolutely can get through that in a month, read it for 30 minutes or whatever day, and you're done. And you're at the 80% mark. Everything else beyond that is just practice, practice, practice. But for everything, I feel like, you know, for VMware, for Hyper-V, for you name it, you know, for for switching and routing, you're always going to want to up-level your skill set. And it's really hard to go from okay, I'm at intro level. I want to go to advanced and expert. Do I buy a course, a boot camp or something? That's going to be $3,000, $5,000, something along that to get a very specific course that's been, you know, the agenda and the outline has been dictated by the vendor in most cases. Or can I spend maybe a third or a quarter of that and literally be in a room with just amazing talent that just is very excited to share their techniques? Now, obviously, there's no certification that comes out of going to something like this. It's not certification prep. So I think you have to weigh that against what your goals are. But for me, like coding skills and and more writing workflows and scripts and, and learning how to automate things isn't something I'm looking to certify in because I don't really see the value in that personally. So I wasn't worried about it. Now, you mentioned parallelism earlier, which I know that's a specific example that you cited of some of the content that was there, but I'm curious about that. Does that mean multi-threading, you know, doing multiple things at the same time within the context of your script, or is it something else? That's pretty much that. PowerShell, I only thought I had two ways to do parallelism with jobs and run spaces. It turns out there's also this thing called workflows that apparently no one wants to use, so you don't really have to learn that. But one of the team members from the PowerShell group actually at Microsoft, the name escapes me at the moment, went through an hour-long session where he went deep dive into, here's how you use jobs, here's how you use workflows, here's how you use run spaces, here's examples, pitfalls, why we did things, you know, kind of the, the thought behind stuff because, hey, him and his team invented it. And it's literally, I want to, perhaps I want to gather 100 objects out of the environment or execute an action on 180 accounts in my environment. Well, if I do that in serial, it's going to be, it's going to take 100 of whatever that is times that time. You know, if it takes 10 seconds each, 
it's now 100 times that, so 1,000 seconds. This allows you to, uh, with run spaces and jobs specifically, generate kind of worker pools and say, okay, I have 20 threads now instead of one, and I'll just feed those as one of my 20 threads frees up or five threads are having me you spin up. As those free up, I'm going to keep giving them more work to do so that you can do things in parallel without crushing a box. Because if you just let it go hog wild and it's trying to you know, execute something against 10,000 objects, I don't think most processors can handle that. Like your desktop's probably going to vomit on that kind of work. So it's a way to control, but also execute in parallel. And it was hands down the best session I went to. I was taking so many notes. I live tweeted it because I was like a kid in a cancer. I'm like, this is all really cool. Uh, I can't wait to do this, you know? It's going to up-level my code, and then I'll teach other people. So I was really excited. This is going to be a dumb question. We're going to ask it anyway. So with parallelism, you can do multi-threading. I assume you can take advantage of multi-core processors. Does that also lend itself to distributing a script to run across multiple physical hosts? Or is that really not something that you would ever do with PowerShell? Oh, man. We, we didn't go that far down the rabbit hole. I can make some assumptions that because... PowerShell remoting exists, and you can do remote sessions, and sessions are something you can control both locally and remotely, that if you wanted to get mad scientist crazy level, you could do it. I'm just dipping my toe into this world myself, so it's just, I think I'm too intro to really answer that at a deep level, but I assume you could at some point, yeah. I want to go back to the title of this event, the PowerShell and DevOps Global Summit. Okay. So obviously the context as we've been discussing has been primarily PowerShell, but that has to therefore have been tied to DevOps. So what were there any big ideas you got or you know advancements on the notions of what DevOps is and how it's being practiced today that were you know kind of takeaways for you? Well, I'll say the first thing I went to was a little bit disappointing because it was a 101 session on DevOps and I felt like we've kind of beat that horse to death over the last 3-4 years. So that one didn't give me any great moments in the in the sky or anything. But beyond that, what I did like was that a side room was partitioned off for discussions and conversations around DevOps, and specifically uh, Jeffrey Snover, who is the you know the godfather of PowerShell. He basically invented the thing. Had some conversations both in that arena as well as a Ask Me Anything environment, and he really talked about okay. DevOps is not a tool. We all get that. It's not It's not a thing that you purchase. But more around the silo busting that we focus on and the DevOps ecosystem as a whole as it pertains to PowerShell, specifically around the fact that, yeah, it's a, it's a framework and a language written for ops with kind of like a twist of lime being the dev that's been added to it, you know, with um, controlling for syntax and how variables are declared and making it kind of developer-like, meaning... All along, they wanted to have something to kind of cross the gap between dev and ops. And I think that's really the goal. What can we do as developers and ops folks to really work together to build something that's amazing? And that when we do those kind of things, life gets better for everybody. And this was one of those tools that I felt like was really catered towards that conversation. So it was the first time where I'm sitting there thinking, like the light bulb goes off. Yeah, PowerShell is not a DevOps tool because that's not a thing. But man, it really was written to make that conversation and that world easier and better. And I can see why and some of the questions that he was answering around that clicked for me. And I don't know, I came off like, oh, man, that makes a lot of sense. That's kind of groovy. We can actually make a language like that. But at the same time, that notion of you know, dev and ops working together ends up with a better IT world isn't a new idea. I mean, we've hit that on this show several times with certain of the guests that have come through. Yeah. 
Charity Majors, uh, Bridget Cromhout, for example, they, they've talked about that at some length with us here. Yeah, it was really more around, you know, I'm a PowerShell developer, if you want to say, like I write PowerShell stuff. It was like one of those moments where I thought, okay, this isn't just me writing PowerShell over here in my corner. This is literally, I now have context and verbiage and, you know, that, that lingo, that kind of private lingo that developers use. I'm being exposed to some of that because of PowerShell, which makes my job of communicating with them easier because I'm talking parameters, I'm talking classes, I'm talking objects. And it, it helps cross that gap between their world and my world because we're working on something that feels a little bit familiar to both of us. And that was the moment where I was like, this is pretty cool. I can have conversations at a different level because you know, I pushed into something that was a little bit uncomfortable and unfamiliar to me, and it made life a little more comfortable and familiar for them. I'd like to introduce you to our sponsor today, Illumio. Segmentation is the best way to prevent the lateral spread of cyber threats, but traditional network segmentation, you know, VLANs and subnets and zones, etc., They only provide some isolation because the primary purpose is to boost network performance, not to provide granular internal security. Now, let's look at the Illumio approach, adaptive segmentation technology. That is designed to stop lateral threats. It works seamlessly between any data center in the public cloud, and it keeps policies in place as applications move between environments and locations, and it can auto-scale up and down. Using Illumio, enterprises such as Morgan Stanley, Plantronics, Salesforce, and King Entertainment have achieved application micro-segmentation, a 90% reduction in firewall rules, and finally have visibility into all of their application dependencies. Find out more about Illumio by going to www.illumio.com slash datanauts. So there's PowerShell, the language. There's PowerShell, then the use cases that you can apply that language to, which, as we've talked in the past, it strikes me that it depends a whole lot on what libraries are available so that you can use PowerShell to interface whatever the systems are that you're trying to interface with. At a high level, give me a sense of the domains that PowerShell really works well with. I mean, Windows administration, sure. I know you've done some work at Rubrik to make that uh, an administratable domain. What else? Where else does PowerShell fit into my life that you've run into? And, uh, and, and say something about networking, even if it is, there's nothing that you can do with networking, <laughs> Ethan. Well, I'll start off. There was this great quote that Jeffrey Stover said during the Ask Me Anything, and I think that'll help answer it. As far as domain goes, he was asked the question, what's the primary use case for PowerShell, specifically on Linux, You know, basically what you're asking? And he laughs, and Jeffrey loves to poke the bear, and he says, well, if you noticed, Linux is becoming more like Windows every year. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's ha-ha, right? Like, ha-ha. no, the guy's wicked smart. He's a gentleman and a scholar. And he explains it, and the way he explained it was, and you can disagree, and that's fine, but I, I did think that he had a point. Linux, its entire file system is based on ASCII text. Like, everything's an ASCII text. Bash is basically scooping through it and finding matches using regular expressions and things like that. And that actually they tested that at Microsoft back in the day. Are we going to follow this model? Do we want to do something different? And Microsoft, you know, love them or hate them, decided to go a little more object-oriented, you know, obviously with, with .NET and C and et cetera, is very, being very at the heart of the, of the operating system. So everything is kind of key-value paired, and they use private and internal and, and sometimes public APIs to get stuff, right? So they've been doing that for everything, right? If you imagine uh, the example he gives, imagine doing a grep, 
against the registry. It would just vomit stuff all over the place. It wouldn't work very well. If you think about it, uh, this is the point that he makes, you know, Linux, the bits and pieces of that ecosystem at the very least, is moving more towards using JSON, the JavaScript object notation, and REST APIs, and becoming more object-oriented. And that was one of the reasons that perhaps PowerShell on Linux actually made sense. Because if, if Linux was just remaining purely strings of text and all ASCII, having an object-oriented scripting language on there would be stupid. Like, it wouldn't add value. You just use Bash or whatever it is you want to use, you know, Born Shell, etc. But if you start to use PowerShell, because it is a natively object-oriented language, it starts to unlock all sorts of possibilities. And so that was basically the way that he turned a joke into somewhat serious factual information. Well, that is actually a really interesting point, though. I mean, because you, know, you remember the show that we did with Ryan Booth about network automation, the state of network automation, trying to explain to the rest of the IT world why we're lagging behind. There's a lot of parallels there, because with network automation, so much of what we're still having to deal with is screen scraping. And to draw a parallel to what you were making about the Bash shell, grepping your way through strings of text, very much so in the network automation world to pull out your result sets and you know, and so on to make sure things went well. And we're just now getting to the point of REST APIs and uh, Yang models getting built that we can use as a, as a reference for how we're going to interact with devices. And But yet vendor adoption is very slow in this regard and so on. Getting to that point of being able to deal with the network in an object-oriented way is... And then using REST APIs is uh, is still more or less a long way off, at least as far as making it to be a standard thing within networking. So it was kind of interesting to hear that <laughs> you know, if Bash, you know, as an interactive shell, begins to make those steps towards being object oriented, that lends itself well to PowerShell. That's actually really interesting. Yeah, you know, and everyone's got different tools they want to set or awk or grep or whatever. What I was thinking when I heard that literally went back to the show that we recorded. I assume, like to my knowledge, most network switching you know, platforms, all the, the operating systems that they're based on are Linux, if I'm not mistaken. It would kind of then lend itself to the fact that you're screen scraping and doing these things because it's not an object-oriented environment already. Well, what, what happens with a lot of those platforms is that there may be a, some kind of, of a Unix kernel underneath. For example, FreeBSD sits underneath Juniper devices, but you're not really dealing with that shell hardly ever. You're really dealing with Junos, which sits on top of FreeBSD. And there are, it's the same thing with um, most of those platforms. There's a Linux kernel underneath there, and the NOS that you interact with is running as a process or a daemon, effectively. Uh, with a few exceptions, like Cumulus Linux is truly a Linux distro that is got uh, the network stuff built in. So it's <laughs> Yet another illustration of the problem in networking. <laughs> There's no one way to do it. 15 different ways. Anyway, yeah. Okay, so we talked about parallelism uh, a little bit earlier. W what other interesting techie topics came out of the PowerShell conference for you? The Ask Me Anything was great because I actually learned from Jeffrey the why behind things. And in fact, all the Microsoft folks that were there shared a lot of the, the thinking behind things. Like, I'll probably do a post here shortly, but the use of the variable that gets passed through a pipeline is a dollar sign underscore because you're passing out the variable. So it's kind of like the pipeline is a, is a vertical line and the underscore is a horizontal line. So the variable is passing out. Get it? Like it's falling over. It's going to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> like all these little nerdy, these little nerdy jokes, these little kernels of like, oh man, we're all super nerds at heart. Like there was no technical reason for that. You picked it because it's a joke, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> I love that. But more seriously, 
there was a lot of focus on unit testing. Because if we want to, we being the PowerShell community, want to put on our big boy pants and say, okay, we're, we're actually writing code that is going into software, like we're developers in, in a sense, then we need to unit test everything, meaning we need to test the logic and make sure that the code coverage percentage is high. You know, We're testing all the code in the scripts and the functions and the modules. Uh, and that's, I tell you what, if you want to talk DevOps when it comes to PowerShell, that's the key piece because unit testing is not something I have ever done in any previous iteration of my ops life. It's totally coming from the dev side and learning that has been a challenge. So hearing people that make this their life, like Adam Bergstrom was there and he is writing the Pester book, which is a framework for testing PowerShell code, Pester. I think it's on LeanPub. I'll put a link in the show notes. He wasn't there, but a lot of people reference him the whole time. And I think he was there on Sunday to do a little, a shorter session or like half workshop and trying to get my head wrapped around unit testing and functional testing. And there's like this whole library of weird words, stub tests and mock tests, and double stubs. And I'm like, this sounds naughty. What are we talking about? <laughs> so. But the core of unit testing, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong here, but this is about, I've got something new, I want to deploy it. And before I do that, I want to see what breaks. And so I'm going to run this code against a series of tests that validate the interaction of this code with everything else that already exists. Well, unit test is specifically testing the logic within the function or the piece of code to make sure that when I call this parameter, parameter A, that the logic goes down the path I expect it to for parameter A, and that the inputs that I provide result in the outputs I expect. In most cases, it won't be towards a live system. So this is actually validating your own code, just that code block, not the interaction of that code block with everything else, but just that that code block is behaving as you expect because you're going to throw a bunch of testing at it. Exactly. And that's very necessary because, you know, what input validation is important. Make sure that if I give you the word banana and you're expecting a number 42, you know, how does it handle that error and what blows up and does it blow up the right way? And I've actually had a lot of code where I really thought I had done it right. And when I run the function, it works fine. Like I give it banana and I get back the proper error or whatever it is. But then I actually unit test it and I find out it's not calling the guts within the code that I thought it was and that it's just accidentally getting the right answer. That's not cool. You don't want that accidentally getting the right answer is a pretty horrible like gut feeling. Like, like how is this even working? You know? Particularly in the realm of input validation, that's a very important function to have right in that a lot of security exploits are based on, I threw this weird input at this port, at this input query field, and because it wasn't validated properly, I was able to execute some next step that leads them eventually towards being able to own a system. SQL injection, classic example oh, yeah. of that. So that's really interesting. Not only does it validate that your code is working as, as expected, it's validating that it's not working in a weird way. <laughs> that's the way you're <laughs> <Yeah>. describing it. <laughs> Whenever you bring up the SQL injection thing, I always think of the guy who was driving on the highway with the with the drop tables on his license plate so that the that the thing that scans for your what is it the toll booth yeah the toll booth scan it just drop its tables so that he could never have to pay tolls to go through that's a that's a classic internet meme <laughs> uh, but yeah it's exactly that it's making sure that you succeed as expected and that you fail as expected cuz fail is not a bad word you know if someone gives you an improper input that you need to handle that. The interesting thing about the topics around mocking, which is our ways to supply an artificial input or 
potentially an, uh, an artificial output because you just want to test the logic and you don't want to have it to go to a live system because perhaps you can't. So the mocking and unit testing itself were really totally different ways to write scripts and functions to make that easier and to make unit testing really simple and automatic. And it's a totally different way to do things versus, you know, when I started writing PowerShell back in 2008 or 2009, I was just literally taking a file and saying, do this, then do this, then do this. And if it blew up, it blew up spectacularly or partially. And I didn't know anything about error handling or wrapping it in functions. And Error handling is what you add later. You assume the input's going to be fine. And if it's, you can yeah. assume it's fine, then you just rock on, baby. Make that thing do what you need it to do. <laughs> Knowing in the back of your mind, you know, I really should be sanitizing this input and all the rest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll get to that eventually. But I didn't even know how, you know, and, and I wrote code in PowerShell for me, you know, and I knew what I wanted. And I remember one of the examples I gave to the community while I was there, and it's something I, I'm not, I'm not ashamed to to talk about. I was at the time, uh, was I had I had some really slick PowerShell scripts to clean up after an employee had decided to resign or was terminated. And one of the things that it did was would go ahead and clean up their user directories, you know, the their their basically their home drive that was on the NAS. It turned out that I didn't write that code exactly how I thought I did. And so when I gave that to a coworker to run, it didn't handle a space or something correctly and ended up deleting everybody's home drive. Ray. And the first time we're like, that's weird. And we just restore because we had shadow copies turned on. And the next time it happens, like, oh, God, it happened again. And my heart's like, ah, I feel sick on the inside. And, and I'm like, oh, I didn't handle this thing very well. Like, oh, I hope no one notices that. Automation lets you fail at scale. <laughs> yeah, it's always fun when you see like 700 home directories just poof, <laughs> minus anything that's locked, which is weird because then you've got some stuff is still there, some stuff is not. So it's one of those things you teach yourself through failure and then you never make that mistake again because you're like, oh no, I'm testing this forever because there's nothing worse than deleting like the C-level executive's home drive and he's like, I can't find my PowerPoint. So that's, that's not fun. <laughs> Anyways. Eh, arguably that could be a feature. Our Data Not sponsor today, Liquid Technology, asks the following. Do you have decommissioned IT equipment just sitting in your data center or office? Is your company planning an upgrade, cloud migration, or relocation? Liquid Technology can help. They will de-rack, pack, and purchase your excess technology hardware. Increase your budget by getting money back for your excess IT equipment. Liquid Technology will ensure your end-of-life IT equipment is safe. They provide on- or off-site auditable data destruction services. Whether your operations are in Tulsa or Tokyo, Liquid Technology has expert knowledge in local regulations to deliver a compliant global solution to your company. If you are concerned about the environment, note that Liquid Technology is an EPA-recognized, dual-certified green recycler. Don't let your assets depreciate in power-down racks or storage rooms. Gain that space back and maximize the return of your excess technology. Visit liquidtechnology.net slash podcast today for a chance to win a $300 Amazon gift card. That's liquidtechnology.net slash podcast. So another thing that I noticed you guys did at this event, they had a feature called Lightning Talks, which for the purposes of this conference, how are the Lightning Talks structured? In a pretty different way. You know, I've been to places where you get the red card because vendors are up there and things like this. At the PowerShell and DevOps Global Summit, it was a moderated set of lightning talks where you literally get 10 minutes to go up there and talk about anything you want, you know, some cool projects, something you're working on, etc. 
the moderator was a friend of mine named Warren Frame. He goes by Rambling Cookie Monster on GitHub and PS Cookie Monster on Twitter for PowerShell. He's a groovy dude. He's written a lot of stuff in the community. He actually wrote or at least hosts the invoke parallel command. Anyways, getting out of the rabbit hole there. The lightning talks were crazy popular. I expected to be like six or eight people because you're getting up in front of like everybody and everybody had a demo. Like So you're swapping laptops, internet's a challenge. Like It ended up being immensely popular. I think 40 or 50 some odd people got up to talk about a project. Wow. And literally like when 10 minutes hit, they're like, hey, it's over. Uh, one of the guys... Uh, Brandon Odin, I think, is his name from Columbia Sportswear. He was talking about a project called Poshbot, uh, which is literally a little communicative bot that injects into Slack and you can ask it questions and all that kind of stuff. I think he got halfway through his demo. He was just about to say, okay, this is how you do this. And like, I guess we'll never know because 10 minutes, you know, get down. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's, it's really that rigid. The, uh, the hook comes out after 10 minutes, you're done. Yeah, because there's 47 other people yeah, behind you that want to so. present their thing. But still, that's cool, though. I mean, in 10 minutes, you can at least give people a, a sense of whether they're interested in what you're working on or not so that they can say, oh, I could use that, and then they can jump on board and do it, even if you don't get the, all the way through the demo. Exactly. Exactly. And it ended up being – I mean, if you think about it with that many people – maybe I'm exaggerating. Maybe it was 30 or something, but it was a lot of people that wanted to present. What the folks running the show did was they carved out an entire session block because there was three sessions running in parallel for the whole show. So they took – I think the last day, the Wednesday, the entire afternoon, they just blocked out a room that was packed the whole time. And they said, all right, this is where you can do demos. And it was great because I saw Poshbot. I saw some other cool technologies. One of my friends, Brian Bunky, actually went up to talk about being a good Gitizen, you know, from GitHub. And it was realistically just, hey, yeah, we all write PowerShell and we're, we're nerdy about that. But how do we then collaborate on that with a distributed version control system like GitHub and Git? And it was just his experiences within the GitHub community because him and I also run a, an open source project together. And he shared that for 10 minutes. So there's no demo or anything, but he had a lot of cool examples in real world, you know, real life. Like, this is what happens, and here's some good tips to have. So it wasn't all just, you know, let's dig into the code, although there was a lot of that. But it was a great show. And I, I had a ball. These things were just really cool. Well, now you said you didn't think it was going to be that popular, as in you didn't think that many people were going to give lightning talks, or you didn't think that many people were going to attend the lightning talks? Well, a bit of both at different levels. Like, it's not easy for, like, public speaking is right up there with, like, snakes and hang gliding or something when it comes to fears. <laughs> you know, like Indiana Jones, I hate snakes. <laughs> so I did not expect to see such a rush of people to go up there and share what they had. And I think that speaks admirably to the show, the, you know, the event itself, that there's a lot of trust. There's a lot of, you know, okay, if this is the one place where I'm going to show off what I'm doing and really kind of step up in front of a packed room of people, you know, 100-something people, this is the event to do it because it was very positive and encouraging. And it was one of those environments where the men and the women that were in the audience were very supportive and gave their, gave their time to, to the speaker so I was surprised mostly to see that many people step up, but also that uh, at one point the show organizers were like, look, if you're going to stand in here, you got to stand in this specific area. You can't be in the aisle way. Like if there's an open seat crushed to the center, like everybody's starting in because the fire marshal's not even going to allow you to stand in these other areas. Like I've never seen the fire marshal called as a reason that we can't get more people into a room. Like literally it was like, this is it. If you're outside stand, we'll keep the doors open and you can watch from the hallway because we legally can't let you in the room. Like that's amazing. 
I expect it to be a good turnout, but not that great. It, it really speaks to community, though. I mean, you, I think you hit it right on the head when you said, if there's anywhere that I could go to present my interesting PowerShell project where these people are going to get it and offer me some good feedback and so on, it's this group. And so maybe that helps overcome some of the fear. It's tough getting up in front of a crowd where you don't really know who's in the audience. You've got some sense of it, but you don't exactly know. Like if I'm speaking to a crowd of engineers, that's one kind of a talk and a certain attitude that you can take and a certain language and lingo that you might use that if you're talking to people that are more executives or maybe more media oriented because they're writers it's a different conversation you're having because they you know that they hear you differently and they interpret what you say differently and so it's a very different feeling that can kind of fill you with a lot of uh, anxiety whereas if you know you're speaking to quote unquote your people they're going to hear you in the right way and that i think that can help overcome a lot of that angst and uh, really give you a lot of confidence to get up there and just say your thing you're not going to be misunderstood these people care about what you're working on because they're there implying that they're working on things too and they want to learn and so there's this built-in knowledge that i'm standing up here sharing something that someone else is probably genuinely going to be interested in and is going to care about and understand that goes a long way in that kind of a conference so that's that strikes me as also being a little unusual in that it's end user practitioner focused and not, I mean, because there's some really granular conferences out there, OpenStack and Kubernetes and several other ones, where the the thrust of the talks are developers talking to other developers about the project that they're working on. And it's not so much end users and what they've done with the project to further their organization along. It's a very different focus. This, what you're describing, sounds like People that have got this great tool, PowerShell, and they're really doing cool things with it and want to share it. That's a, that's a different kind of a thing. That um, it, It's neat. I'm, uh, I'm not even a PowerShell user. And just the way you've described this all is kind of inspiring <laughs> to me. Yeah, because you also had, you know, there's the Lightning Talks, which I'll put a link in the show notes. All of the resources and the talk information are there. I don't know if there's videos, but most everybody made a GitHub repository or shared the GitHub repository where their code or their idea is. And that was awesome. But you also had sessions where I think because it was so community oriented and it was kind of narrow in its focus and it was not there to sell you anything, you also got some really sessions that you wouldn't normally be able to get, which I think were the cherry on top when it came to something like this and really, for me, helped crush some of the silos that I'm dealing with. Uh, Two examples come to mind. Luke Deacons, a very popular and prominent figure within the vSphere community. He's written a lot of code for VMware's module called PowerCLI, or at least a lot of code leveraging that module to help out people that are running VMware environments. And he was there to talk to kind of the developer community and the cross you know, VMware and Microsoft community that happened to exist with his vSphere DSC, the desired state configuration software, as well as this other gentleman named Kirk Munro literally had a one-hour deep dive session about nothing other than error handling. And it was amazing like <laughs> it was it was hands down the most nerdy like it, i knew i was in the right crowd because at one point i think he was generating a splat which is a way that you can answer a bunch of questions all within one variable for powershell and i think he was generating a splat and he's like everyone in this room knows what that is right and we kind of chuckle like we've all been doing powershell for at least five years so no big deal and, and it's it lends itself to the comment you made about knowing your audience and when you have this group of people that are just hanging on every word they're all engineers they're all there to to literally like just learn stuff that that was another session where i probably made 15 or so tweets 
covering what he was talking about because I was so interested in what was going on. Uh, and you can find that in my feed from la- around April 12th or so, I think, from the conference. So there's just there's a lot of value in that. And I think it, it both crosses the silos, provides technical guidance for people that are looking to up-level their skills. It's just fun. It feels good. It feels good to learn, you know? Now, you got your own open source project called Vester that you've written about on your blog and uh, I think talked about on the show a little bit. Did you get to talk about that at all at this event? Not by choice. I was forced to do it because I was thinking, all right, I'm at a very heavy Microsoft-focused event. You know, everybody's out there for PowerShell and DSC and Azure. And yes, I caretake a project called Vester. I would not dare to say own anymore. And that's literally the words VMware and Pester put together because we all know naming an open source project is literally the hardest part and the most technical challenge. Remember earlier I said I'm kind of lazy. I didn't even feel the snark for you. So it's just like, oh, <laughs> Vester, there we go. Uh, and, and yeah, apparently there was a lot of demand because what it does is it takes your existing VMware environment and it codifies that into a key value pair set in JSON to basically say, this is my cluster config. You know, Is the distributed resource scheduler turned on? Yes, it is. What value is it set to? Fully automated, blah, blah, blah. And it fills out this very beefy JSON file that is kind of a snapshot of your VMware environment. It's basically all the configs are laid out in a file. And then you can change some of those, or you can just say, yes, this is good as it is. And Vester is designed to look at the environment beyond that point, you know, maybe tomorrow or tonight or whatever, and compare it to the configuration set forth in the JSON and find out if there's differences. You know, it's basically like a desired state config without requiring anything other than a JSON file in PowerShell. You know, it's very, very lightweight. And you can also tell it to fix problems if it finds a difference. So if the distributed resource scheduler is turned on, but it's set to partially automated, and the file declares that it should be fully automated, you can just say, go ahead and fix that. Because I find that a lot of times it's two in the morning and you're fixing something or you're doing something, and you'll turn something on or off to troubleshoot, and you're like, oh God, it's fixed. You just go to bed. And you wake up the next day and you forget that you've made these changes. Or somebody else does something you know, stupid or unintended, and this will just fix that for you. So I'm thinking, you know, no one there really cares because it's VMware stuff. And I'm like, how do people use VMware? And everyone raises their hand. I'm like, I forgot that VMware is everywhere. You know, it's the data center, you know, de facto hypervisor. So I was, I was basically told you're going to get up there and talk about the project. Uh, and that was awesome. I showed a demo. It sort of worked <laughs> because I'm tethered to my phone in a room full of like 100 people with phones <laughs> trying, to, trying to VPN back to California. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like you see the Apple keynotes. It's like, will everyone turn off your phone so I can get some Wi-Fi signal? I should have I should have pulled a uh, Steve Jobs on that. But it worked pretty good. I'll leave a note in the show notes. Uh, it's called Vester with a V, and it's uh, github.com slash wallnetwork slash Vester. You can just search for Vester, and you'll find it on there. And again, this event that we've been talking about, the PowerShell and DevOps Global Summit, I suppose if you Google that, they're going to come right to it. And if people are interested, they could... Is it too soon to register for the sixth annual event, I suppose? Well, you're right that you can just search for it. And I'm also, I put, I'll put a link in the show notes. I think the tickets will go on sale soon, you know, maybe within a couple months, something like that. They're literally doing their post-mortem, I think, while we're recording this. There'll be some early bird tickets. I advise, if you can go to something, if you're interested in PowerShell, if you're interested in that community, even if you're totally noob right now and you've never touched it, you can learn between now and then, get the tickets it's such a great technical event to go to. It gets real value, and you're going to meet a lot of people. Like I met probably a dozen people I didn't know, but kind of lurked on, you know, followed them on the internet, and now I shook their hand and met them, and can talk to them at a deeper level on Slack and whatnot. 
it's so much more valuable, I think, than your average kind of trade show or whatever. Depending on if your if your goal to go to a trade show is just like party and get some free swag and whatever, cool. There's no real free swag and you know boozing it up at these th- at the the power cell summit, but it's number one on my list. I'm absolutely going to go back. So I, I hope to see more folks next year. Well, that is it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. You can reach Ethan. That would be me at ECBanks on Twitter. And my blog is EthanCBanks.com. You can digitally probe Chris at Chris Wall on Twitter or via his blog, WallNetwork.com. And for more of our Data Knot shows about infrastructure engineering, nosedive down the rabbit hole that is PacketPushers.net. You'll find the Data Knots talking about containers, conferences, certifications, PowerShell, moving to cloud, full stack engineering, storage architecture, and so much more. And until then, may your server lights blink, your storage spindles spin, and your cables be cleanly managed. Mm-hmm.